Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So a lot of folks are there scrolling on Instagram at night getting completely overstimulated by the blue light and that's bringing up all of these feelings of like unworthiness like resentment you know our memories start going that is a big reason why like nighttime is an issue especially when we're on our phones because it's opening up this gateway mm. to our limbic system if you were subject to abuse or trauma or grew up in an alcoholic or, or addicted household you are more likely than someone who didn't have those things to develop not only all like chronic digestive disorders like IBS and inflammatory bowel disease and these types of things, but you also are at greater risk for multiple different types of cancer and cardiovascular disease and neurodegenerative disease. All of those things. So it's not just like gut stuff, right? right. It's heart stuff. It's brain stuff. It's circulation stuff. So basically like having these things set you up early in childhood heavily influences future risk. So it's not just like all in your head, like all in your head that actually creates like physical changes and outcomes and risk for your life. Hey everybody, welcome to Health Theory. Today's guest is Dr. Jillian Tita. She's the author of the book, Natural Solutions for Digestive Health, and she's a widely recognized expert on all things digestion. She's written on the topic for or been featured by countless prestigious outlets, including Dr. Oz Online, Parade, Publishers Weekly, and On Fitness. She's also a former figure competitor and sought after speaker who lectures extensively around the country. And where I want to start is exactly with the figure competitor stuff. That's so intense and normally completely devastates people's digestion, mm -hmm. like seeing the number of people that just get mulched up inside from that. Yes. Um, what was that experience like? What drew you to that? My, it actually was my sister-in-law, Jill Coleman, who was like, Jillian, you, would, you have a wonderful body. You would be a fabulous figure competitor. Let's do it. And so I really jumped into it having no prior experience. And so started with the meal plan and the exercise plan. And I think that I might be an exception because I really never struggled with my gut health mm. during competition, like during getting, getting ready, like the prep, all of those things. I think with my medical background that I could approach it um, with a more grounded perspective in terms of nutrition. Like I always made sure to get my vegetables. I avoided a lot of the mental and emotional traps that I see a lot of competitors fall into where they become, you know, they become food obsessed, mm. you Talk know, to me about that. and so, that all or nothing mentality. So when you're, you know, if for your listeners that don't know, when you're getting ready for a show 
it is weeks and weeks and months and months of eating like boiled chicken breast, you know this, and like broccoli that's like in a baggie, you know, and you're eating constantly, you're eating multiple times a day, very, very bland food. And before you know it, you're like fantasizing about like a bacon cheeseburger. Like you would rather eat a bacon cheeseburger than like have sex with someone. You know, it's like, it becomes <laughs> like that, like to that level. And so then a lot of competitors, like they'll finish their show and then now what? Mm. A lot of women, like, they don't know how to eat. They don't know what to do with themselves. They're at the grocery store, and they're like, well, do I just get chicken breast? And then they have that, like, first taste. They go get their, their like, celebratory meal of that bacon cheeseburger and fries, and then it's just off to the, off to the races. And before they know it, you know, they put on 30 pounds mm. in six weeks. Was that something that you consciously avoided? Like, saying that you didn't fall into the mental traps shows already a level of awareness um, that I think a lot of people don't see that coming. Yeah. Um, or they're competing because there is emotional issues already yep. and getting that ideal physique becomes a way to combat either negative self-image or whatever. Yep. Um, yeah, how did you The, the latter was not true for me, so I didn't feel like I had something to prove. And for whatever reason, this might just be my own, ni my own like naivety, is that I didn't, I was never extremely body self-conscious. And we could maybe get into like, you know, the, there's a lot of like uh, privilege that goes with that, but it had never, that had never occurred to me to like obsess about my body. Mm. So I think part of it was just dumb luck. And part of it was, I knew how to eat for my body and I knew what I liked. And I also knew that if I did like want some foods that were like off the diet plan, that it wasn't going to get things off track. Mm. Like, and I proved that to myself over and over and over again. So really it's, I guess that's a very long way to say, I trusted myself. Right. Talk to me about learning to trust yourself. Talk to me about learning to eat for your body. Like how do people go through that discovery process? I think um, I've worn a, um, a glucose monitor, mm -hmm. which I found really enlightening in yeah. terms of how things impact me versus how they impact my wife, who was also wearing one and seeing like the massive disparity in how we responded to things. Um, but I think most people don't really know what's yes. affecting them. So yep. how did you get that knowledge? I think the first piece is you absolutely have to have self-awareness, mm. both of like your conscious thoughts that you're thinking and then also the intrinsic cues that your body is presenting or showing you. You know, your, your levels of hunger, how your mood is, what's your level of irritation. Like, are you craving sugar? Are you craving salt? Are you craving uh, alcohol or what have you? So the first layer is this piece of self-awareness. You sort of like assess that. You assess your current nutrition and what you're doing. Maybe you make tweaks. Maybe you notice like you are eating a lot of sugar. There does have to be some level of accountability in turn, and by accountability, I, I mean like, let's take stock. Let's talk, take stock of what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And if something is not working, first we have this layer of self-awareness and then we have to begin to experiment. Like we have to be open-minded enough to begin to sort of experiment and tweak and change things around, incorporate some changes, and then adjust from there. What you know, are you monitoring? Are you writing things down? Are you testing blood sugar? Yep, so I think at first, it's in, the easiest thing for people to do is to write things down. To write down the foods that you're eating, maybe the time that you're eating them, the amounts that you're eating, and how that you're making them feel. So a very like mechanistic way to go about it is like looking at macros, right? Like just doing it that way and seeing which, what are the foods that bring me extreme satiation? 
and which are the ones that actually are going to increase my cravings and would put me on like a bender. Mm. So for me, if I have like a handful of roasted almonds, Tom, I, they're delicious. I love them. But if I eat almonds, I'm going to eat like all the almonds and then I'm going to go back to like the, the, the kitchen ca cabinet and like eat everything that's in the house. It is a food that's going to accelerate and exacerbate like it's going to increase my uh, frequency of eating and my cravings. Whereas something like salami or cheese or even like a glass of wine, that is going to be extremely satisfying for me. So neither of these foods maybe are like perfect or are going to be like on the figure competitor diet, but they are like a, they're like a, um, a break safe against going overboard. Mm. So it's really about just like balancing those extremes and like becoming more moderate in the middle. Mm. That's really interesting. That notion of like a gateway food that like really draws you in. I don't have an addictive personality, so that isn't something that I've um, really ever struggled with, mm -hmm. but seeing the way people are like, I can't have X, Y, Z in the house. Yep. How do you work with your clients? Do you get them to write down problematic foods? Do you advise them mm -hmm. not to have it in the mm -hmm. foods? Do you, um, do you, are there certain things that are like a, a break system for most people? Like, so those breaks, like they're highly individual. So for you, like almonds might not do that to you. Like almonds might be that like buffer against the binge or what have you. Mm -hmm. So people mostly come to me for digestive stuff, right? Yeah. So what we do is we sit down and when someone's meeting me for the first time and I'm meeting them, we're talking for like an hour. Mm. And not only are we talking about what they are eating, we're also talking about some of their mental and emotional stressors. Because to your point, you mentioned an addictive personality. I do think like in the figure competitor world, bodybuilding world, I think that a lot of folks with these types of personalities use that profession as a way to manage their mm -hmm. mental and emotional like dysfunction. You are able to 100% like control your food with the reason of like, oh, I have this really prestigious goal. Mm. I need to get down to like X amount of body fat. I need to like, you know, look this certain way in a bikini. I need to become a pro. I need to do this. I need to do that. When I got my pro card, I retired. It was my last show. Really? Mm -hmm. Interesting. Why? I was just finished. I just knew that I was finished. Um, what does it take to build a physique like that? Like, what are the dietary things mm -hmm. that you would focus on? Is it mm -hmm. uh, protein intake? Is yeah. it, you hear a lot of math around protein? Yeah. Like, I've heard up to two, or with some people, up to three grams of protein per pound of lean body mass. Mm -hmm. I mean, like some pretty staggering numbers. What, what did it really take? So for me, it took time and consistency. I wasn't as technical with my macros and my calories and tracking everything. I was making sure that I was eating like a serving of protein with every single meal. So I did about one to one and a half grams per my total body weight. Okay. And I did better and I still do better even to this day with slightly lower carbohydrate intake. For show competition, it is like, for me at least, my diet was lower fat, lower carb, high protein, mm. I guess was like the bottom line of it. Right. Um, and ultimately that is not sustainable. It's not sustainable and it's not good, it's not healthy. So I wanna be very clear that I'm like not advocating anybody right. do a show <laughs> like at all. Um, it's just, it was a, a time in my life that was a lot of fun and like I learned, I learned a lot about people I learned a lot about like the stories that we tell ourselves because it's a perfect metaphor, right? Like, oh, if I just like look a certain way, I can get the trophy. 
Mm. You know, like if I just look, have this certain physique, then it'll be good enough. And what's going on like behind the scenes there? Like what, mm. like, why do you have that story? Right. But for me, it wasn't, I wasn't as like emotionally, um, involved at that level. I want to go back to what you said about when you first meet a patient, what you're asking them, what are you guys talking about? Mm -hmm. What are the, like, do you have a standard checklist of things that you begin to ask people? When we come in first, I basically start with what's the current problem and all of the, um, you know, the attributes around that. So what's going on? How long has it been going on? Where is it going on? Um, what makes it better? What makes it worse? Kind of getting the lay of the current symptom picture. And then that's often a segue into their nutrition and what they're eating. If we don't segue into that, we'll often segue into a story about um, some emotional thing that happened, a death or a loss or a divorce or whatever. I can't tell you how many people come into me and say like, everything was fine until I got breast cancer or until my husband left me and then everything like follows from that. Mm -hmm. Then, so we'll go into nutrition and then I ask very explicit questions about bowel movements. I ask questions about sleep and their exercise and their movement. And then I want to know like what fills their cup, like what gives them per like what gives them purpose? What are they working for? Like what's their art? What's their creation? All of those things. And then from there, you can get just a t just a ton of information about people's inner motivations and what's going to help them implement the suggestions that I'm going to be making. This is the thing that I found most interesting in researching you is how often your answers came back to something mental. So that was really powerful and yeah. certainly has been my experience in working with Lisa on this. So my wife has massive digestive issues and has been struggling for years and has made a massive amount of progress. But every time we have a setback, it's around stress, like for yeah. sure. And it's crazy how it, like if you were just looking from the outside, it seems like her mental state makes her have reactions to, to specific foods that yes. wouldn't have three days before yes. that bothered her. And so that's super fascinating. So um, walk me through what are some of the things, like what are common things that people struggle with mentally um, and which came first? Was it the mental disturbance that then caused the sensitivity or was it the sensitivity and the, obviously a lot of the neurotransmitters starting in the gut? Um, is that what comes first? So sometimes it's just physical. You go to India, you get a parasite, and you're messed up for a while. But sometimes it is stemming from these deeper, more nuanced layers. And I think at the core, everyone's a little bit different, but it all does boil down to some, some self-narrative of not being good enough or failing yourself or others or wanting love that for whatever reason you're not able to deliver yourself. And these are kind of very deep, heartfelt, like common human experiences. And it all revolves around that, whether it's around, you know, performance, like I'm a workaholic and it's because I'm trying to provide for my family and like, or it's, you're looking for acceptance or you're looking for a trophy for like standing on, like on stage in a bikini. Like it's all comes back to these little roots of in some way feeling inadequate or unworthy. What have you come across um, that explains the physiology of Yes, that? so I love, so this is great. So here we go. So you've heard of the gut-brain connection, right? For sure. So we have our enteric nervous system, which is the second brain, which mm -hmm. is like that vast 
network of nerve cells that is all throughout the GI tract, right? Base of the, the base of the esophagus, all through the intestines, small and large, all the organs terminating in the rectum. Your second brain is managing and monitoring all aspects of digestion, everything, and it regulates your motility, so how frequently you are pooping. It operates independently from the central nervous system, which is our brain and our spinal cord, but it has a relationship. So the two are in this very intimate, like second by second, bimodal feedback relationship where the stimulation and information that's coming from our central nervous system is communicated to the enteric and vice versa. So your question of like, is it the chicken or the egg? Like what comes first? It can really depend. <clears throat> if we're talking, so like, let's go on the uh, central nervous system angle. Our central nervous system, we have the autonomic nervous system, which is fight or flight and rest and digest. And those two are supposed to be like back and forth, right? Like a seesaw, like we need both in things like chronic stress and trauma and abuse and like over dieting and under sleeping for like, you know, four years or whatever, you can get sympathetic over dominance, which I give this example a lot, but if you are likening your autonomic nervous system to like a seesaw, you want two little kids on the seesaw so they can go back and forth. In sympathetic over dominance, it's like you have an elephant on one end of the seesaw and a little chihuahua on the other, so you get stuck. That overdrive primes your limbic system to view everything as not safe. Mm -hmm. Then there's other layers of the limbic system. So your limbic system is filtering all of your sensory input. It's kind of managing your memories and your emotions. And if you're in this state of sympathetic overdominance, even like bright lights could trigger your limbic system to say like, this isn't safe. Mm -hmm. And then your limbic system activates your sympathetic nervous system your sympathetic nervous system is, uh, the word suppression is not the right, the exact technical term, but it dysfunctionally influences the enteric nervous system where maybe your stomach acid production goes down or like you're losing your ability to produce digestive enzymes and things kind of like grind to a halt. You know, your gut slows down, right? Some people get constipated, some people get diarrhea, some people get both, some people develop IBS. So from that way, whether it's a memory that's triggering you or a sensory input that's triggering you or just this like grind of stress, that can be enough to create sympathetic overdominance. We call this dysautonomia. I'm sure you've heard that term. I have not. Dysautonomia. dysautonomia. So dysautonomia underpins IBS, which is irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel disease, menopause, anxiety, most like function, what we call like a functional gastrointestinal disorder, which is be like you're chronically constipated, but we actually can't find why. We're seeing that the roots of these are imbalanced in the enteric nervous system, which is coming from dysautonomia. So it's fascinating. Yeah. So that's like that and coming this way, but then say you're having digestive distress you're un super uncomfortable because your gut is full of gas, you know, and all of your pain receptors are firing like mad. Then that feeds back up to your central nervous system and you're anxious or you're irritable for no real reason. Mm. So it goes both ways. What the hell did we do about yeah. it? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, a, it's a great question. So this is like the final frontier, not just in like digestive distress, but I think in many chronic 
conditions and disorders. So ones that are not necessarily caused by like a physical event. You know, it's not a parasite. Like you didn't break your arm. Like I think even, you know, cardiovascular disease all has roots in mindset work and undoing and deconstructing mm. these unhelpful stories that we have about being unworthy or like not good enough or those types of things. However, before we just jump into that, <laughs> there's practical things that we can do. I call this de-stressing your gut, right? I even have like, a pro, like a, an academy about it. How do we de-stress our guts? Mm. So on the practical perspective, there's a couple tools, tools that I like and we were chatting about one of them earlier, which is the daily walk. Going for a nice, slow stroll, preferably in nature. Um, you know, Japan is doing a ton of research into this. They have a beautiful name for it. It's called Shinrin-yoku, means forest bathing. And what they're finding is that walking in nature helps to balance the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems and buffer the brain against the deleterious effects of cortisol. So cortisol itself, like inherently, is not bad, right? Like any other hormone is just not bad. In excess, of course, it can be. But going for that walk is unbelievable at helping to de-stress. I often tell my clients, like, if you go for a walk every day, in a year you'll change your life. Just that. Okay. Nothing else. No dietary tricks. Like, n you know, nothing else. Just go for that walk. That's so interesting. So... Uh, this reminds me of grounding. So where mm -hmm. you go outside, you take your shoes and socks off, and you stand on earth. The earth, like, yep. Not cement. Yep. Not, not the sidewalk. Yep. Right, like legit uh, on the ground. Do you think something like that is playing out when you're forest bathing, or is it literally just it's pretty and you're walking slowly? I think it, there could definitely be a component of that. But when we think about like the physical processes that happen when we walk as well. What's going on? Like our blood is circulating, right? So more blood is being delivered to our brains. More blood is being delivered to our muscles, right? So we're delivering oxygen, we're delivering nutrients, we're delivering sugar, we're taking away, you know, carbon dioxide and lactic acid and all the like junk. So you're increasing that whole process. But also, you know, from a real evolutionary perspective, like our bodies were made to walk, like we were made to move. And in terms of like digestive distress, I'll tell folks movement equals movement. So one of the best interventions for constipation is walking. Cause you know, what do we do now that we, we mostly like sit around all day. Like many of us sit around all day with terrible posture, eating food out of vending machines. There's an enormous disconnect between our bodies and like our lifestyle. Mm. And so the walk helps bring that back in we can take the walk a step further and turn it into almost like a meditation, a walking meditation, or just simply an exercise in mindfulness. So I might coach people who are open to it, and I don't always start with this who, if folks are like super overwhelmed, but when you're walking, you know, feel the sun and the air and the wind on your skin. Really listen to the sounds that are going on around you instead of like whatever committee is in your head and like the list, right? Um, look at what is directly in front of you. Like is it another person? Is it a tree? Is it birds? And just really experience that at like a microsecond to microsecond level. Mm -hmm. And when you m find your mind like wandering, like galloping away as it's going to, you just bring it back. So you can take the walk a step for like a step further. And this helps cultivate self-awareness, not just like awareness of thoughts, but also awareness of body. 
which if we're looking to improve our quality of life, again, like coming back to that piece, like you have to have some level of self-awareness at that mental, emotional, and physical level all. So I think it's a wonderful way that we can get into a person from multiple different doors. Next is sleep. And I take sleep very, very seriously with my clients, again, because a lot of them are completely overwhelmed and are just scrolling on Instagram until like two in the morning, you know, looking at things that are stressing themselves out or worse, they're like looking at the news, right? And so creating real boundaries around your sleep-wake cycle and creating a bedroom that you actually want to sleep in, right? So ideal sleeping conditions for humans are the room is dark and it's maybe on the cooler side you don't want to feel hot or sweaty at all. Like you want to be very, very comfortable in bed. And then you don't want anything like stressful around your bedroom. Like, I don't know, unpaid bills or like unfinished products, like, you know, projects, like things that are going to keep your mind hooked on them. And if people, a lot of people are, uh, they're light sleepers, you know, so any little thing will wake them up, you know, maybe their parents and like they're const- they're just trained to like listen to their children. So I'll often tell people to like get a white noise app or like uh, an air filter or a fan that will put out white noise so that their brain can disengage from being hypervigilant, you know, listening for like the kids or like the person that's breaking into their house or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if only uh, you could sleep through that. Um, So that's really interesting. I think that sleep is... Uh, something that's really underutilized, but I've never heard anybody talk about the bills and unfinished projects mm-hmm. and stuff. I think that's really, really fascinating. Um, do you talk at all about blue light? Or, yeah. um, so what are your recommendations around that? So, and it, that's actually a great little like segue because say someone is not really actually willing to put down their phone yet, right? Like they don't, they're not quite there yet. They can put their phone on night mode where when the sun sets, it the blue light is removed or you could get blue light blocking glasses, you know, on Amazon for, I don't know, 15 bucks. Like they're very, very inexpensive. And what that does is that reduces the stimulation of your brain in terms of the blue light. So blue, blue light can decrease your melatonin production, which of course is responsible for our circadian rhythm, which is like the sleep-wake cycle. But what we're seeing also is that it's also highly stimulating in a negative way to the limbic system. And again, that limbic system is what's guarding like our sensory input, which makes sense, right? It's a visual input. And then emotions and memories and things like that. So a lot of folks are there scrolling on Instagram at night, getting completely overstimulated by the blue light, and that's bringing up all of these feelings of like unworthiness, like resentment, you know, our memories start going. That is a big reason why like nighttime is an issue, especially when we're on our phones, because it's opening up this gateway Mm. to our limbic system. Yeah, it's really interesting. I've often felt that there's a part of my brain that's like shut off at nighttime. Like there are things that in the middle of the night, if I wake up, that I will think about, that'll loop in my mind, I'll be unable to sleep. But I know as soon as the sun comes up, I'm not, it won't bother me. I could think about it in the same way. I could even like really focus my time and energy on it, Mm -hmm. but it's not going to bother me in the way that it bothers me at night. I'm guessing there's something that there probably really is either a different neurochemistry going on or that there really is a part of your brain that in the sleep cycle begins to shut down or is impacted by um, the melatonin or whatever the things that help you sleep. 
Um, it's at least experientially how it feels. The other part I think is in daylight when I'm not supposed to be in bed, I have the most powerful thing at my disposal, which is action. And I was just thinking of today for some reason this morning, thinking about how action really does cure all anxiety. Like if you're the unfinished um, project mm-hmm. is sitting there, it's niggling at you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But if you just go work on Do it, it if yeah. You, yeah, if you take even 15 minutes mm-hmm. and make progress on it, there's something in the brain that goes, okay, we've made progress on that thing and begins to alleviate, which yep. is um, really powerful. So once we've taken care of um, the, the stuff that we just went through, um, give a quick breakdown of like story, how you begin to help people get out of that. And then I want to talk about what we can be eating or what we should avoid eating. Mm. I think, again, it comes back to self-awareness. The very first piece in deconstructing the story is it's acknowledging that there is a story that might not be serving us. It's almost like, you know, when you're an alcoholic, you have to actually admit that you're an alcoholic. Like with these stories, with these like unhelpful thought patterns, we have to admit that there is something that is going on that is not helpful for us. And people have really traumatic things happen to them. So if you were raped when you were a child, like obviously like that is not your fault. That is not a story that you are telling yourself. But you might be telling yourself a story about who you are as a person now because of that experience. And now you have a responsibility to yourself if you want to be fully engaged in your life and be like, whether it's happier or more peaceful or like more at ease or more develop more self-confidence to like overcome challenges and obstacles so that you can just like engage with the world more and like make a positive difference, you have to begin to take responsibility for how you're going to move forward. So awareness of the story, identifying the story, and then there's a couple other different tools like identifying your role in your own story, giving other people that might be featured in your story the benefit of the doubt that they're doing the best that they can. Meaning what? So this was somebody that's, my parents did a bad job. They raised me poorly. Yep, yep. Bottom line is that your parents, with the tools that they had at their disposal at that time, at that second, are doing the best that they can. What I think it does is it levels the playing field that we are all imperfect human beings that are doing the best that we can. Okay, so we, we're changing our own story, we're finding our role in it, we're reassigning a new role um, to people that play a part in our story. Mm-hmm. Um, do you help people construct a new narrative? Mm-hmm. Um, is it around empowerment? Yeah. Like, What's the core of that new narrative? The core of the new narrative I th- and this might sound like not what you're expecting, is cultivating boundaries and clear communication. Like really saying what you mean and what you want and what you need and not trying to manage the emotions of others and trusting yourself enough to actually be able to like state your preferences, draw those boundaries and tell people how you feel. I feel like men and women are both socialized in different ways to not trust ourselves And so part of the work then becomes learning how to trust yourself again. And part of that is communicating what you're actually like desiring, thinking, feeling, and wanting. Mm. And being willing to experience their emotional reaction to that. And also trusting that they can handle their emotional reaction and that they can handle your emotions as well. Mm. It's really interesting that 
you know, all of this started from a conversation about the enteric nervous system. And, but it's, it seems very right and very true and certainly very accurate to like the, the one thing that anybody that thinks that this is disconnected need only ask themselves is, have you ever had diarrhea because you were nervous? Yep. And it's like, once you realize, oh shit, yeah, like I've yep. had that trigger just thinking about yep. something or having something stressful that I have to face yep. gives me an ups, upset stomach. Like yep. it's really interesting. It is. Well, and think about like when you're, when you're falling in love, like think about when you are, when you like meet that person, right. And like you're meeting up and like that, that like soaring feeling in your gut. Yeah, then it's intu it's intuitive, right. Mm. Or when you get the bad news, like how that feels like that, like clench in your gut. Mm. But even beyond that, we can look at the fact that when we crunch all the numbers, if you are someone who as a child had, you know, had a high ACEs score, so ACEs is adverse childhood event score, if you were subject to abuse or trauma or grew up in an alcoholic or, or addicted household, you are more likely than someone who didn't have those things to develop not only all like chronic digestive disorders like IBS and inflammatory bowel disease and these types of things, but you also are at greater risk for multiple different types of cancer and cardiovascular disease and neurodegenerative disease. All of those things. So it's not just like gut stuff, right? right. It's heart stuff. It's brain stuff. It's circulation stuff. So basically like having these things set you up early in childhood heavily influences future risk. Mm. So it's not just like all in your head, like all in your head that actually creates like physical changes and outcomes and risk for your life. Yeah, there's a book called The Brain That Changes Itself, which is a pretty fascinating look at how we have this organ that merely by thinking about something new can actually change its phys physical structures, which yes. is already fascinating. Yes. And so understanding that we have this profound ability to change our, the and the physical structures of your brain, knowing mm -hmm. that that echoes in the body, knowing that the microbiome is sort of like this colonization mm -hmm. inside of you of something that isn't technically you. It's not human. Um, right. It's not so human. How do we, one, how do we understand that? Like mm -hmm. just give people a little bit of frame of reference around what the microbiome is exactly. And then how do we, um, if we can use a garden metaphor, like how do we grow the right things? How do we mm -hmm. plant the right things? How do we sustain them? I love those too, because there's actually a hugely intimate connection between the microbiome and the second brain. Mm. So the microbiome is a term for a, the colony of bacteria that live, reside in the large intestine. We also have a microbiome on our skin and in our mucous membranes and in our genitourinary tract and like in our scalp. The one, the microbiome in the gut, they number between one trillion and 10 trillion cells. So wow. humans are, we humans, each of us has about a trillion cells. So we are at least as much bacterial as we are human. Wow. If we took all the bacteria out of like an inch and a half of your large intestine, more bacteria live there than all humans that have ever lived since the dawn of our species. Collectively, they weigh about three or four pounds, right? So this is like organ size. And they are represented by thousands of different species and strains. 
and you use the word ecosystem, and I love that because it is the microbiome is very much an ecosystem. And like an ecosystem on Earth, diversity is like the buffer against ruin, right? So you want your gut to have a lot of different species because if, I don't know, you get a pathogen or you take antibiotics, like that's gonna wipe some of your guys out. So you want other guys to be able to take over. It's just like if you, you know, you have a garden, but you're only growing lettuce, say. Mm. We'll say the slugs move in, right? You're gonna lose your whole garden. But if you were growing lettuce and carrots and blueberries and had an apple tree, like the slugs aren't gonna make you lose everything. You have that diversity in there to buffer against negative consequence. So what we're learning is that it does everything from helping us humanize the food we eat. So we eat a lot of plants, right? What does that mean? So humanize means our bacteria help take plant nutrients and plant pieces, you know, to be extremely simplistic and manipulate them so that they can be absorbed and utilized by our human cells. So it's almost like a conduit or like they're alchemical. Mm. It's like they're creating this alchemy that allows us to actually derive the nutrition from the foods that we're eating. The microbiome also helps manufacture certain uh, vitamins and um, like sort of subvitamins, and it also helps with blood pressure and blood lipids and our waistline, and it helps talk to our immune system so that our immune system doesn't become overstimulated or too lazy. It talks with our enteric nervous system to help promote optimal motility. It recycles, reduces, detoxifies a number of different hormones. It activates certain hormones. I mean, what have I met? Like there's, there's virtually no corner of our body that our microbiome doesn't touch. Mm. Taking, if people have eczema, you know, like skin rashes, dermatitis, acne, probiotics can help with that. You have environmental allergies, probiotics can help with that. How do we know the which ones to use? So like mm -hmm. as Lisa went through this, that was where we first started. We found that actually some probiotics were upsetting her stomach yep. even more. We found um, others seemed to do absolutely nothing. nothing. We worked with somebody who created a custom one for her. Yep, okay. Um, so I want probiotics to be a silver bullet. They have yep. not been so far for Lisa for anyway. Mm -hmm. um, how do we know what probiotics to take? Yep. What yep. can we expect? I can give some general rules around that. And just for, for people who are listening, probiotics are like the supplemental form of beneficial bacteria. You're literally eating bacteria. You are literally eating bacteria. And they are not a silver bullet. So I wanna be very like clear about that mm -hmm. because there is much more to how the microbiome manages itself and operates and executes than just by like externally taking in a bunch of probiotics. Right. But for like general ground rules, what I would say when we're looking for a probiotic is you want to get a probiotic that mimics like general healthy human gut flora as much as possible. So I tell folks you want to be looking for a probiotic that is very rich in lactobacillus and bifidobacter strains. So not just like, not just like one strain, but like multiple different strains and that is free from corn, soy, and milk. A major reason why people react poorly to probiotics is because they're grown in like a milk medium 
and they're actually sensitive to dairy. So you want to make sure that you're getting hypoallergenic probiotics. Will it say that on the bottle? Yes. Okay. You want, to, you want one that at least says corn, soy, and dairy free. Another thing that you want to look out for is a lot of probiotics try to be everything. So they're like a probiotic and a prebiotic. Mm. So they're made with things like, you know, inulin and something called FOS, fructooligosaccharides. Well, those, those two things, those prebiotics, for some folks, especially if they already have a disrupted microbiome, those are high FODMAP foods, and that can be gas producing and promoting in itself. So it's like you're not actually reacting to the bacteria, you're reacting to all the things that are added to it, right? right? And then another thing that we wanna look out for is you wanna make sure that you're getting one that is like a moderately high dose, like between 20 and 100 billion. Right? And you want to get one that has lots of strains. So you want to have a high strain. You want to have high strain counts, high CFU counts, colony forming unit counts, one that mimics the human microbiome, and one that is free of milk, corn, soy, and tons of like oligosaccharides. And with also with probiotics, I like folks to get like just a probiotic. Like don't get a probiotic and an enzyme and a multivitamin, like doing all the things, like just get the probiotic. There are strategies, however, to your point with Lisa, to improve the microbiome without, without probiotics. What do you think sure. about um, fecal microbial transplants? So th this, this is something that I think in 10 years is gonna have much wider application than it does now. So currently, research supports FMT for folks that have had C. diff, like chronic C. diff, and they can't get rid of it, Clostridium difficile, which is something that is induced by antibiotics. It's essentially like an antibiotic-associated diarrhea, but this you know, C. diff can, can kill people, right? So it can, you know, it's, it's extremely serious. I have worked with some people that have had FMT for maybe like IBS or inflammatory bowel disease. So I think it's very exciting. And I do think that if all other things have been exhausted, that that should be, that should be on the table. Interesting. Do you um, think that you need to sort of clear the path with aggressive antibiotics for the FMT to work? Can mm -hmm. FMT just be additive to where you are today? Like, mm -hmm. what does that protocol look like? Well, someone that is a candidate for FMT is definitely gonna have a stool test and like see who's around, right? Like what, like if there's, if there's frank pathogens on board yeah. or if it's just an overgrowth of what we call like commensal bacteria, I refer to them kind of like as frenemies. So it depends on who's around, like how they act, they can be beneficial or not. So I wouldn't, I'm not willing to make a blanket statement like everybody needs to like wipe them all out with antibiotics yeah. or just like go for it. It would really depend on like the level of pathogenicity and also did we get to this spot because we've taken already 10 rounds of antibiotics? Like maybe right. we should give a break and like really try to build up the microbiome with nutrition and maybe use much gentler antimicrobial um, work, which for some folks is as easy as like building up what I call the digestive fire, which is our stomach acid and our, enzyme, our enzymes and our bile because all of those are antimicrobial and sprucing up like the lining of the gut and decreasing inflammation and all of those things mm. first and then doing FMT. But if you have like a frank pathogen in there, and yeah, I would I'd do a killing protocol first. Interesting. Absolutely. Um, talk to me about stoking the digestive fires. How do you do that? Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> a supplemental way is you take a digestive enzyme with meals, 
right? I mean, you just do. Will that actually kickstart things though for you or will you mm -hmm. be, will you have to take the digestive enzymes all the time? In my clinical experience, it acts more like a jump start. Right. So we have our enzyme status and then we have stomach acid. Stomach acid energetically is very expensive to make because its pH is only one or two and our pH is seven, right? So it takes a lot of work and energy and cellular, cellular energy for our body to make enough stomach acid to break down our protein, you know, break down whatever else is around and be at high enough levels to serve as an antimicrobial and a substance that helps promote optimal motility. But in the presence of supplemental stomach acid, because we're built on feedback loops that can wake the stomach up, if you don't want to take enzymes, if you don't want to take acid, there are some things that you can do to build your digestive fire. On the enzyme level, having vegetables or fruits or whatever that you harvest out of your garden, like eating raw foods, contain like beneficial bacteria, right? Um, fermented foods are gonna contain beneficial bacteria. We haven't even talked about that. So fermented foods are ones that have been inoculated with bacteria. The bacteria eat the sugar in there, you know, what have you, and create something different like yogurt or kombucha or kimchi. Those are all ways <clears throat> to bring up bacteria and they also contain enzymes. A food like pineapple is rich in enzymes. So these are all things that can help bring up enzymes. On the acid front, pro eating a little bit of protein consistently every single day will actually help increase stomach acid production. Again, because it's built on a feedback loop, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're a vegetarian, you're only eating beans and rice, your body's like, oh, we don't need that much fire, that much power to break these things down. That's often why vegetarians, if they're like deciding to get back into meat again, they have like, I don't know, a chicken breast, like that's gonna really mess them up because they don't have the ability like they don't have enough on board yet. So you wanna be more graded and sort of like slowly taper up. One more food type that really can stimulate not only like enzyme and acid production, but also bowel flow is bitter foods. I know that you eat dandelion yep. leaves. Dandelion is so good. Uh huh. Do you know how I do it? I chop it up and I cook it in olive oil with like a little bit of garlic and some salt and I huh. slow cook it and it like falls apart. It's glorious. And when you cook it that way, it's not as bitter because I've, I've had it raw on accident <laughs> and, and it's horrifying. Yeah. So is it? Yeah, um, it takes the edges off the bitterness for sure. Okay. It's more like melt in your mouth, but you still get the, you still get the benefits. And what is, what is the bitterness doing? It's jumpstarting what? So the bitterness will help increase your enzymatic output and okay. it's also gonna help with bile flow. So it's going to help get your bile flowing as well. All right. That's very interesting. Um, so for me, one of the most interesting things to come around in a long time is FMT. I'm super fascinated to watch that grow and develop. What's the most interesting thing that's sort of new on the cutting edge of digestive research right now? Oh, it's microbiome-based. I think that we're going to be able to, in mm, you know, 10 to 30 years, analyze someone's uh, microbiome, right? And no, it's big, it's, but, but it's coming. And you are going to get at a very fine level, this very custom tuned bi like probiotic for you that's going to be able to correct whatever's going on, whether it's like modulating inflammation or like mm -hmm. filling those diversity gaps or 
you know, balancing the immune system, decreasing autoimmunity, uh, breaking up plaques in your arteries, those types of things. I think the microbiome is really like where it's where it's headed. And so I'm extremely excited about that. Wow. Yeah. That's an interesting one. Yeah. Good answer. All right. Where can people find your book? Well, they can find it on Amazon in Barnes and Noble. And it's also, I have it linked on my website, jillientita.com. All right. Nice. Yeah. If people were only going to make one change, what's the one change they could make that would have the biggest impact on their health? Go for their walk. Wow. That's so interesting. And be nice to yourself. Those are fascinating answers that ring very true to me. I'm super, super impressed with the way that you go down that path. So thank you very much for that. Um, I think that's really interesting. Guys, I think it's good advice. Go for the walk. Be kind to yourself. Getting control of that story is huge. And maybe chew your food too. All right, you heard it here first. All right, guys, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. <laughs>